The book of 1 John, the apostle has been contrasting a life of love and a life of hate as really the acid test as to whether someone is actually born of God and is doing right before him. The idea of love and of hate is not just an ancient one. In fact, I was struck as I thought about this is how often in the discourse, both friendly discourse and unfriendly discourse of our own times, how often people appeal to these two things, love and hate. So John's instruction, as well as the world that we live in, naturally lead us to the question of how to define what love is and what hatred is. How do we know we are living in accord with love and when we are actually behaving with hatred? And I ask the question because most people would not champion the cause of hate outwardly. Most people are attracted to love. You have people talk about hate when they're talking about somebody else. When they're talking about themselves, they say, well, we're the ones that are promoting love. That's, we understand this, like, intrinsically as human beings. So we want to remember the inseparable connection between sin and hatred and between righteousness and love. Now, why is that? Well, sin declares independence from God's authority and puts self in charge. Sin is inherently self-centered and also inherently harmful to others. Righteousness, on the other hand, acknowledges God's rightful authority over us. God commands us to do good toward others as an expression of love. So righteousness puts helping others above serving ourselves. You see those connections. It is self-forgetting, love is, self-denying, self-sacrificing. And that's why Jesus declared that to be his disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. It is to the cross of Jesus, therefore, that John will turn our attention as the true measure of love. So in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 16, follow with me as I read. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and re reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So as we look at this part of 1 John, we're going to look at it under three headings, a demonstration of love in verses 16 through 18, assurance of heart, and that's really important to us because this whole, this whole teaching of John is meant not only to help us discern false teachers from true, but, but also to discern whether we're in the truth. And so it's naturally going to lead to our questioning what our status actually is. And depending on your personality and your makeup and what's going on in your life, um, they, some of you struggle more with whether you actually belong to Jesus. Others of you don't struggle that much with it very often. But he's going to address that assurance of heart. And then, finally, the commandment of God. What is it that God is actually concerned about? What, if we had to sum up, commandments, what would they be? So we'll look at it in, in these three headings. So let's first look at this fundamental truth about the demonstration of love. Verse 16, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ laying down His life shows us the nature of true love. Jesus Himself uses the same language that John uses here. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And as he talks about being the good shepherd, he's contrasting himself with the hirelings, with those that are false shepherds. And we understand this. When we truly love a person, we find that giving up ourselves for them is what we want to do. It's even our delight to do it. Love makes us willing and eager to lay down our lives for people we love. We're naturally reluctant to sacrifice for those with whom we have no personal connection. But for those we love, well, that's a different story. We find joy in giving generously of ourselves to them. You know, Jesus taught His disciples in John 15 that greater love has no one than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. We lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same spirit that Christ laid down His life for us. It's voluntary. It's love-driven. There's, there's a joy in doing it because it's from the heart. We, we want what is good for our fellow family members in the household of God. Paul actually talks about this in, in Philippians 2. He says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit." But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul, like John, also draws this parallel for how we live with one another to how Christ laid down His life for us. Christ went all the way to the cross for us. He humbled Himself even to death. Now, as we think about this, the, the reality is the chance to die physically 
for another person is not all that common. It depends on what kind of situation you're in, particularly in, in a time of relative peace, uh, in a place in the world where we have relative peace compared to some war-torn areas. The opportunity may not arise to actually give your life for another person. And when and if the opportunity does come, you can only do it once. Right? I mean, that's it. So John goes on to what kind, what kind of self-sacrificing love, what self-sacrificing love looks like in normal everyday life. In other words, he's going to talk about something you can do as a pattern of life, not just as a final exclamation point. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? God's love showed itself by self-sacrifice, and here I'm not even willing to give up some of my stuff. So, so look at, let's break this down just a little bit. Look at how he lays this out. If anyone, so this is universal in its application, there's no exceptions to it, has this world's goods, so as a believer, I know that everything I have comes from God, and it's to be used in a way that pleases God. Second, I see my brother in need. So there's an awareness of that need. I've given attention to it. It's not just, it's not just a passing impression. It actually speaks of actually knowing something about what's going on. And third yet closes his heart against him. It, it refers to this internal, internal process going on that's going to manifest itself before I take any outward action. The language John uses points to a, a visceral, a physical response connected to my emotion toward a person. You feel the compassion physically. When you see somebody hurting, particularly someone you love hurting in need, you respond to that. We, when we grieve deeply or fear greatly or have any other kind of intense emotion, our bodies, not just our minds, react. And we have idioms that talk about this. We talk about, I have a, a broken heart. If you've had anyone very close to you uh, die, what you feel for some time is like you've been kicked in the chest. I mean, you literally feel like your whole chest just aches. A physical response to an emotional feeling. Uh, we talk about maybe we're nervous to give a, a speech or getting ready for something and adrenaline's kicking. We talk about butterflies in our stomach. Okay? And all kinds of ways that our, our bodies respond to what's going on in our minds and our emotion toward other people. Well, John, when he talks about closing one's heart to another person, it means you're, like you're, you're shutting down what's just the natural, visceral kind of response to need. You're, you're tamping it down like, no, I don't want to do anything about this. And he's actually tapping into what God commanded the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 15. He says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. 
So that hardening of your heart is closing your heart toward him. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. He goes on in verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not, gru- not be grudging when you give to him because this, the Lord your God, will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Have you ever had somebody do something to you, for you, that you knew they resented doing? I mean, I think about all kinds of, of home situations where that can happen. Um, maybe, husbands, you plan to do a project, but your wife needs to talk through a difficulty. And, and you kind of shrug and let out a sigh and you give her the time, but you let her know that you're not happy about it. Okay? Or teenager, maybe your parents had asked you to clean your room uh, before you go play ball or before you go do something that you want to do, and you kind of forgot about it, and you're getting ready to head out the door, and, and your mom reminds you, and you, you don't respond very well. Okay? We don't, if I do what's right to do grudgingly, does it really count? Is it really that valuable? In fact, haven't you ever had somebody do something for you and they do it so grudgingly, you want to just say, never mind, I'll do it myself, okay? We want to give with our heart. Now, woven into this command here in Deuteronomy is a way of living this profoundly God-conscious And God-dependent. In other words, I'm recognizing God has given me what I have. He's given this land. God will bless me as I use this land in a way that is in keeping with His will. In other words, I I don't have... I'm, I'm living life conscious of God. It's all about this relationship with God that drives how now I'm going to interact with other people. So verse 18, John says, Little children... Those that are born of the Heavenly Father, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Without deeds, to back it up, just talking about love is worthless, even insulting, dishonest. It's kind of bait and sweet switch where you profess to love, but there's nothing that would indicate that you actually do. Genuine love, love and truth, shows itself with deeds, not just words. Now, we know this instinctively, and yet we also know it's easier just to talk about love than to practice it. Talk is often free. Love costs us something. Now, I'm not saying don't ever use loving words. In fact, if you want to destroy a relationship, just never express love for the, for the other person or relationship. And, and don't, don't give the excuse that you're just an introvert, okay? You, you need to express, if it's in your heart, you need to express it with your mouth, and, but also with your deeds. Speak with both your mouth and your deeds. You know, God does that. God, how do we know God loves us? Well, He tells us that He loves us, and then He shows us that He loves us. God showed His love for us while we're yet sinners, and that Christ died for us. So, let me ask you this morning, what is in your hand in terms of the world's goods 
or in terms of abilities or in terms of time, what is in your hand that you could use to help a brother or sister that you know is in need? This assumes that you've got some kind of relationship where you actually know what's going on in other people's lives and you're not holed up all to yourself. And it's not always things. It could actually be time. Uh, Either way, you're giving a piece of yourself to that person. You know, the goods that you have, uh, likely you put in any number of hours to pay for them. There's some kind of investment that you made that put them into your hand. Well, you're giving a piece of that to someone else. Lay your life down for others and and stop. You know, the most miserable people on earth are the people that are clutching their life tightly around themselves and and are not willing to give to others. There, there's joy in giving yourself. Think about, think about, you know, we're getting into the season of, of marriages, okay? And, and think about people giving themselves away in marriage. You know, all that I am and have is yours. I'll keep myself only under you. That is not a funeral service, <laughs> right? People don't go, oh, so sad. <laughs> well, she's off the market, now, maybe there are some people that are thinking that, but, and she is off the market, okay? But, but she's not grieving that she is. Uh, as, as they give vows to one another, they're not saying, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but okay, here I am. No, it's, it's like, this is my delight. We look forward to this. We give. Now, what that, too often that changes over time, doesn't it? But there's joy in actually giving yourself freely to another person. There's joy in that. Parents, you, you feel this. When, with your children, it, it gives you delight to give to them. In fact, one of the problems you, you deal with is that your tendency is to, sometimes to want to give them too much and spoil them. And so you've got to rein it back because you have such delight in giving. Say, well, I need to take delight in making sure they grow up to be decent people that other people can live with. Um, but, but we want to do it from the heart. It, it's joyful. Uh, years ago, um, John Piper's statement, dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. You know, when we express love to God, it, it ought not be just out of duty. It's, it's not really love then, is it? And when we express love to other people, it, it can't be just out of duty or it, it, it doesn't feel or come across like love because it really doesn't have the heart behind it. So as you think about your relationships, I mean, start, those of you that are married, start with the person that you live with. And by now, you know all the flaws. You know things you didn't know before and maybe you wouldn't have jumped in before if you knew all the things you know now. And over time, things change. Some things get better, some things get worse. Okay? But, but how can you show genuine love? How can you lay down your life for that person? How can you lay down your life for your kids? And what's interesting about this is I can be five years old and I can show genuine love to other people. So as a kid, like how are, how are you showing love to your siblings or, or your parents? Or, 
or when you have to, do you look at everything you're asked to do as like a tax on their time? No, taxes are when you pay somebody you don't love. <laughs> right? I mean, if you were, I mean, right? <laughs> what you give out of love gives you delight. What you give because you've got a gun to your head if you don't, well, not literally, but eventually. There's, there's the power. This is one reason we pay taxes, Jesus says, and Paul, um, because they bear not the sword in vain, but also we do it for conscience sake, knowing that God has put them in place. So out of love for God, we actually can actually find joy in paying taxes too, believe it or not. <laughs> it is tax season too. But give yourself. Don't let your love be like, you know, little, little bit of the time, like, okay, you can have that. Give yourself. And then whatever comes with that will just bring you joy. Well, second, what about this assurance of heart? Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And he's pointing back to what he's just talked about. If you're living this kind of life of love. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So this ongoing practical love that's manifesting itself in deeds demonstrates to us, assures us that we are of the truth. In other words, the fruitfulness that loving actions represent displays the reality that I have spiritual life from God because God is love. God shows love. So if I have life from God and I'm showing love, I know there's a vital connection. That evidence of divine life in us gives us assurance that we're truly saved. It's not the basis of our salvation. We're not saved by our good works. They are instead the fruit of our salvation. The fruit, not the root. They're the outward manifestation of an inward change that God has worked in us. It's how people know to use Christ's analogy, what kind of tree we are. Okay? Now, what is this whenever our hearts condemns us? Well, that's the effect on us when we behave in an unloving way. Now, why, why, does, why does this have this effect? Well, sinful behavior, and that's behaving in an unloving way, they're one and the same. Sinful behavior erodes our sense of assurance that we're truly saved. Why is that? Because God is loving. And if we're not acting loving like our Heavenly Father, it makes us question, wait, wait a minute, what's going on in my life? But God is greater than our heart. God, however we're feeling at the moment, God knows our true identity. He knows whether we have life. He knows, by the way, that sometimes we will sin. That's why he said clear back, in 1 John 1, 9, we need to confess our sins, and he'll be faithful and just to forgive us. But sometimes we don't live consistently with the life of God in us, and we feel the guilt of being out of step with our true identity, and it troubles us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. He, he leads us to confess it and to repent of it and asking forgiveness on the merits of Jesus. So the pain and, fee and grief that we feel from our own sin, our unloving behavior, 
drives us to Jesus to be cleansed and restored to fellowship. And with that fellowship restored, it's like love begins to flow again. It's like that sin plugged up the pipe that was letting love flow from the reservoir. And with having that sin removed, now, now we can love others like we ought to. Look, you, can, you see this in your own life, and you can watch it in other believers' life. When they're not right with God, when something's not right, they stop getting along with people the way they used to. It just is that way. And a lot of times you can even see it on the countenance. And, and we'll ask, like, what's going on? Are you okay? And, and start probing to find out what's actually going on in our heart. This assurance of heart. So 1 John 3.21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. When we sin against God, our hearts condemn us, driving us to the cross of Jesus to be cleansed from our sin. When we do right before God, our hearts rejoice, and our confidence that we truly belong to God grows stronger. So think about it this way. The damage that sin does to you and to me is not just the punishment that we dread should we get caught. It is the immediate impact of feeling distanced from God. And as a believer, sin torments our hearts. It's a beautiful and joyful thing to walk in God's ways. I mean, to feel like you're living a day walking with God, doing what He wants you to do, that you're like, you're on mission, you're His ambassador, you're living out what God created you to do. That's, that's life. That's the life. Sometimes it may cost us our very lives in a world that's hostile to God. But those who follow Jesus find a reason for joy even in suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. This is the way they treated the true prophets. When, when you are reviled and when you're, you're mistreated, it's not that you're what they call a masochist, you love pain, it's that, it's actually that you love Jesus and you love others and you love being close to God enough that it's worth the pain. It's worth it to be close to God. And we grieve when we aren't. 1 John three twenty two, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Our, our desire is not just to obey God because he'll zap us if we don't, but our desire is to please him, or to put it this way, to bring God pleasure. It's not a slavish obedience. It is a submission of love, of relationship, and that love relationship is what gives us confidence in prayer. In the context here of using this world's goods to help a brother in need, we, we could wonder whether we will have enough if we're giving some of it away. We save for a reason. In fact, Proverbs teaches us the wisdom of doing so. We know that days will come 
when we need to use what we've said. We know as we get older, the days will come when we can no longer create the income that we do now. Joseph in Egypt instituted a policy of saving up the surplus of seven years so that there would be enough for the seven years of famine. So we know that that's a wise thing. So it raises the question, if I give away some of my surplus, what's going to happen? And what John is underscoring is that God supplies what we have. And when we use what we have, that came from God anyway, to help brothers in genuine need, we are doing His work. We are following His will for how we use what we have. And therefore, we can freely ask Him for whatever we need. He will keep taking care of us. And this is no new idea. In fact, I mean, it only makes, it makes logical sense that if I will use what God gives me in a way that pleases God, that, that there's a blessing to that. There's, there's good to that. If I, if I use what God gives me in a way displeasing to God, that's when I'm going to risk not having enough. Does that make sense? So, this theme of being generous as God's people goes throughout Scripture. Psalm 41.1, blessed, happy is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Or Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He will repay him for his deed. And Paul applies this principle in his appeal to the church at Corinth. It's a wealthy church, but a worldly church. For them to make good on their promise to help their Jewish brothers that were suffering famine in Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly, that's planting your seed, will also reap sparingly. There's a connection between what you put in the ground, what seed you sow, and the harvest you reap. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because you're forced to do it, for God loves a, a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, overflow toward you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound on every good work. You know, that the things that I need aren't just things. I can have lots of things and yet be lacking a lot that I need. And here, God says that generosity brings God's supply not only of the things that I need, but of everything that I need, and to an abundant degree. Now, Paul has built his argument for sacrifice. He's built it on the work of Christ in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, if you think about it, when Jesus Christ walked the planet, we, we think about the, how poor he was, but you do realize that he was the wealthiest human being in the universe. Because he's God, and he's also man. 
And yet as the wealthiest human being in the universe, he lived a very simple life and gave up his life for us. For those who've been truly born again through Christ undergo this fundamental, this radical, down-to-the-roots kind of change of heart in how they view material possessions. All sinners are takers. As sinners, we're takers. And as saints, we are givers. That's, that's the shift that happens. And it's beautifully illustrated in Paul's admonition to those that used to be thieves. In Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that, and you would expect him to say, so that he has enough to supply his own needs without stealing. But that's not what he says. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this assurance thing, I know, I know, you know, over the years, there are different ones that struggle with this. They're, often they're the, I find they, they can be the most conscientious people in the congregation. They have very sensitive conscience. But, but if you're struggling with assurance, let what God is doing in your heart and how it's flowing out from your life strengthen that assurance. And I, I would note this. We don't have time to go there. But you might want to jot down 2 Peter 1, where Peter teaches that God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. And because of that, make it your urgent priority to grow spiritually. And it's kind of an organic thing from faith to virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and then the, the queen of them all, love. And it, and it says when, when you live growing in these areas, there's a fruitfulness that happens in your life that confirms your calling and election. God does the calling. God does the choosing. How do you know you're called and chosen? Well, by the, by the change, by the growth that you see happening in your life. This is also the season that people are putting in their gardens. Well, how do you know what you actually planted? How do you know that, that you know, well, what grows? What, I know weeds will grow there too. You didn't plant those. The wind planted those. But, but if you planted tomatoes, guess what? You're going to get tomatoes. If you planted corn, it's going to be corn. So cultivate the harvest. And, and by the way, if you plant rocks, you won't get anything. <laughs> right? There has to be life. If you've got life, cultivate it. If you're, if you're neglecting the word, if you're not cultivating friendship with godly people, if you're not confessing your sin, if you're not using spiritual disciplines, you're not cultivating the life God has given to you, you're going to forget that you were ever cleansed. You're going to struggle more and more with the assurance. But, but if you will grow and give attention to growing, then your assurance will grow as well. Well, finally, let's go to this commandment of God, because he's talked about that we keep his commandments and do what's pleasing to him. So what are his commandments? Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. The two go together, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So three times in two verses, John refers to divine 
commands, and he highlights two that are inseparably linked. First is to believe. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the foundational command. You are relying on the revealed character and work of Jesus. His name means Yahweh saves. He saves us from our sins. He is the promised Messiah that's been promised for centuries. You believe that Jesus matches that prophecy. And he is God the Son. He's the God-man. That's what he's revealed himself to be. That is his name. That's his character. And you are relying on that. Reliance on Jesus Christ, God's Son, fundamentally transforms then our identity, our behavior, and our destiny because we are brought back into fellowship with God we're reconciled, we're regenerated, we're given life from God when we were in death. We're brought from darkness to light. And so it naturally is going to lead, inevitably has to lead to love. Love one another as he has commanded us. So the obedience of love is a fruit of God's life abiding in us that came through our trusting in Jesus. In 1 John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides, remains, stays in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So obedience to these commands is proof that we abide in God and that he abides in us. And then he, he refers to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit he's given to every true born-again believer to indwell that believer and to empower that believer. I mean, this is the closest of connections. It's a connection with God, we in Him, and He in us. And that is what transforms believers from what they were to what they are and what they shall be. And it has to. I mean, how can God be in you and you not change? That's impossible. He's infinite. I mean, and over the centuries, he's radically transformed by radically all the way from the inside out people that you thought could never be any different. He's done this. This is his stock and trade. John's last words, verse 24, bridge into his next topic of testing the spirits, whether they are of God. The spirit of God is holy and good, but some spirit beings are evil, Satan and his demons. So just because something is spiritual doesn't make it good. It's fashionable nowadays to talk about spiritual. Well, we need discernment to know the difference. And the difference is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be, will, will mark his presence by the faith we have in Jesus and the love we show to other people. So let's, let's just finally stop there and think about that faith in Jesus and the love we show. Are you relying this morning on the revealed person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Son? Do you count this to be his genuine character? Do you count that God's promises of rescuing you from sin and death are, are truthful and that you can Bank on it. You can, you can risk your very eternal destiny on it. You're relying on Jesus. Or 
Are you this morning still relying on yourself? Or on some other form of reality that you got off the internet? Or anywhere else? Or some old book in the library somewhere? Are you relying on Jesus? Second question. Has your reliance on Jesus transformed your heart and life so that the general character of it is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You find find something inside you that makes you want to show love to others. Or are you still self-centered. It's all about you. Those who belong to God, those who have God in them, believe and they love. Now, as you think about those two things, if you find that you have failed the test, there's still hope for you. You're alive, you're breathing, and you're hearing this message. Part of what makes the good news good, it's that it's delivered to those who don't know God, who don't have life, who are doomed. It's delivered to sinners and offers to them a transformation of their life that only God can work. If they will just turn things over to God, let God drive. Get your hands off the steering wheel and let him take control. You'll get where you most need to go. You'll get to the path of joy. Stop trying to find life And anyone or anything else, including yourself, but him. Because only he can heal your brokenness. Only he can give you life. Only he can give you a life that reveals itself in love. This is the good news. News is to be received. It will bring you joy. Let's pray. Dear God, we we thank you for how patient you are with us. We thank you for how well you know us and yet how much you love us. We thank you that you not only declare that you love us, but you show us that you love us. You actually do it every day. We're alive today because of you. We didn't self-create. You have kept us alive to this moment. But Lord, you've shown an even greater love in sending your son on our behalf. He died to give us life.
And he rose again to confirm that your promise that you would raise us even from the dead, not only spiritually but physically, was a promise that you will make good on. Now, Father, I, I pray. I pray for those individuals here this morning who have yet to transfer their trust over to you. They still think somehow they can do it better themselves. God, break down that lie before it's too late. And I pray that they would feel the joy of trusting you and then feel the love that surges in a heart that's been made alive with the life of God. Father, I know I'm among many who are truly born again. I pray, God, you'd help us grow in the way we show love to others. Help us delight in that love and so bring you pleasure. For it's in Christ's name we pray.